0: Many macroeconomists would say that the odds of a recession are better than 50% over the next 12 to 18 months. I'm certainly in that camp because I think they got so far behind that there's there's nothing they can do other than try to pull back some of the demand.
1: Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about The Pie how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker-Friedman Institute, and in this episode, we're talking about the Fed and its current campaign to bring inflation down from highs not seen in a generation. The central bank's most recent rate hike brought interest rates up yet again on everything from mortgages to car loans and credit cards, But the most recent inflation figures from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed those hikes might be working. Prices rose at a slower rate than analysts were expecting. We're joined now for some explanation by Anil Kashyap, the Stevens Distinguished Service Professor of Economics and Finance at the Booth School of Business. Kashyap has served as an economist for the Fed's Board of Governors, consults for the Chicago Fed and the European Central Bank, and serves on an advisory group for the IMF. He's also an external member of the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee. Anil Kashyap, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks. Great to be here.
1: I'd like to start by just getting a sense from you of just how unusual a time we're living in when it comes to inflation, interest rates, high employment, and how that's all creating what, what seems to me as as Jane's citizen to be something of a bizarro warp in the post-pandemic economy. Is, is that a fair assessment, if, if not exactly technical?
0: The inflation and interest rate uh, configuration is extremely unusual. The unemployment rate hasn't really collapsed, at least in the United States yet. Um, it's it's still the labor market's still very very robust yeah. and that's what's so challenging because you have this raging inflation, um, interest rates have moved up a lot enough to put a lot of pressure on the housing market, but firms are still hiring, and um, it still seems like in lots of places it's pretty easy to get a job.
1: So take us through how we got here to high inflation, a Fed that's jacking up interest rates to levels not seen in decades. Is this all COVID? Is it the supply chain, gas prices, the hot job market, war in Ukraine? How did this unperfect storm come into being?
0: I think there were two big policy mistakes in the United States last year. The one was the last round of fiscal stimulus was just gasoline on a fire that was already going pretty well. And then I think the Fed misread the economy and thought that they had as much room as was later judged to have been there in the 2008-2009 crisis, where maybe they didn't do enough. So the fiscal authority was very, very aggressive. You had these stimulus checks that are still not been spent. I mean, economists do these calculations where they try to figure out what happened to all that money, and you could— you can kind of back in the envelope see that a lot of it is still sitting in people's bank accounts, which is hmm. part of what's giving them the confidence to maybe not come back to work so quickly. And then you had this odd situation where it turned out early in the pandemic, you you know, you were shut in, you were shut down, you couldn't really uh, spend on lots of things. So you had all this money in your pocket, but lots of the parts of the economy were closed. So people were buying TVs, cars, anything that they could get their hands on. The supply of those things was kind of limited in the short run. So that put a lot of upward pressure uh, on prices. And then because it seems like some people are hesitant to return to work and stock market was booming, so people's retirement accounts look pretty good, they were able to maybe step out a little bit earlier than they planned. The result is it's very, very hard to h- hire people. And you can see that wages are starting to rise. And now you've, you've found that also people searching for having a backyard, getting more space, meant that uh, rental markets have, have shifted a lot. And so now you've got a pretty broad-based inflation where now a lot of the pressure is in services and not just goods prices. Uh, but it's it's something we haven't seen in a long, long time. And so, you know, the Fed's on the case now, but they were pretty late to start. And I guess the active debate is, do they push interest rates up all the way to where inflation's really uh, going to start to turn down? Or do they, they say, OK, we think we've done enough. We want to wait and see a little bit. The Fed's nightmare is that People say, well, you know, I don't care how we got here. All I know is inflation's up 10 percent, my salary's up 4 percent, I need a big raise again, and that's how that's how it becomes ingrained.
1: Well, let's look at some ripple effects uh, of the Fed's actions over the last year or so, uh, both here and abroad. First, I want to ask you about one of the economic elements that the Fed has been watching, which, of course, as you have already noted, is the hot job market, high employment, and the economy just keeps adding jobs. Um, and this is described as something that needs to cool off, that this kind of employment picture is not a good thing. Can you explain that a bit, a bit of Fed 101? Why, how is it bad to have so many jobs for people? Why isn't 100% employment the goal?
0: Well, there'll be certain people just coming and going from the labor market all the time. So the fact that there's a few people unemployed just because you may decide you're going to take a few months off between being in your your job and what, what comes sure. next. So there's kind of frictional levels of unemployment. We're pretty close to where people think that might be right now. And so if you're going to try to, you know, encourage everybody to try to hire even more people, the way that's going to happen is you're going to probably not get that many more people working once you're around the level that you know, is required for just comings and goings. Uh, and what will happen instead is you're going to push up wages, and then that's going to turn into prices, and you're going to get this inflation without much gain. So I guess the the fundamental premise is you, you can only push the economy so far by, by giving, you know, credit and lower interest rates and all that. And at some point, what you do is you don't change how many people end up working, you just change the the amount that they're getting paid and the amount that the businesses have to charge.
1: So at what point, I mean, you say that we're kind of there, but what, what is the definition of the perfect employment picture?
0: Well, we don't know. It's pretty noisy. Most estimates would say an unemployment rate of three and a half is a is very, very low. If you look historically, we haven't been at that level for a long time. I think part of the mystery since COVID is what happened to so many people that were working before the pandemic, that haven't come yeah. back, and it's got to be a combination of you know stock market. Now that that's off quite a bit in the last few months, but still, the stock market has made it possible for people to maybe take retirement early. Maybe people've re- reassessed what's important in their life, and if they've got enough money and and just want to have less stress and and live a, a more modest lifestyle, they can afford to do it. So it's a combination of things. It's not something where history is much of a guide because we haven't had an episode like this that you can lean back. You know, you can go back to 1918 for the, the Spanish flu, but uh, we don't really have in post-war U.S. data anything like this to to be a guide that you can calibrate stuff off of.
1: Another ripple effect, of course, has been uh, in the housing market. At the average rate on a 30 year mortgage topped 7% recently, uh, the highest rate since 2002. I know they dipped under uh, shortly after that. Uh, a year ago, they were at around what, 3%? So now home buyers are dealing with a whole new math equation. How does a cooling housing market factor into what the Fed is looking for?
0: Well, housing and cars, anything that depends on borrowing has already gotten much, much more expensive. So you're going to slow that down. And then the question is, what comes next? So will other parts of the economy start slowing? So far, it hasn't happened. The the economy's held up pretty well, given how rapid credit costs have, have risen. Probably some of it is a lot of people bought what they needed to buy over the you know the first 18 months of the pandemic and and they're they're stepping back a little bit now but you know the idea is when people are selling their homes at hugely appreciated prices they're taking some of that wealth and the the capital gain that they get off of that and turning it into spending on other things which continues to keep the economy kind of humming along one thing that drives economists kind of nuts, is <laughs> inflation's supposed to be, what's the general increase in overall prices? And right now, lots of prices are rising, but the public is disproportionately sensitive to gasoline prices. Right. And so those are super salient. They're also very quirky and idiosyncratic. They're not indicative of, of what's going on. Often, there'll be times when gas prices can go up or can go down uh, for reasons that, have to do with you know supply and demand things going on in the Middle East and so on and so the the, the gas price thing is is really really at top of mind for for lots of people
1: let's look uh, globally now at the the effects of the fed's actions uh, one knock-on is the strengthening of the dollar and that has of course sent other currencies especially in Asia to to some record lows it sparked worries about a financial crisis similar to the one in 1997. Talk us through that and how the Fed balances its influence on economies domestically and abroad, or is it not the Fed's job to worry about the rest of the world?
0: Yeah, that's what they would say. I mean, they, they recognize, first of all, legally, they're responsible for trying to deliver you know maximum sustainable employment and, and modest inflation. They're not responsible for figuring out whether the exchange rate between the U.S. and Japan is at any particular level. Right. And so some of some of the uh, other countries have decided that they want to pursue a, a looser monetary policy. That means that, you know, the currencies in, in many of these parts of the world are, are weakening. Um, I think the conventional view amongst central bankers is we, we all do best to take care of our own economies. And if I get my house in order, the best thing I can do to contribute to global stability is just not let my economy get too far out of balance. That that if Jay Powell was sitting here, that's what he would tell you. Um, you take a country like Japan that's had deflation for so so long; they finally are creaking out of it. There's going to be a question there as to whether or not they're going to have to adjust their monetary policy at, at some point, or whether they can they can continue to try to get inflation going. I mean, they they have not got to the point where wage increases are starting to reflect what recent inflation has been. If they, if they can get to that, I think they would be quite happy because that would kind of end the deflation that's that's been there. But you've, it's a great time to go on vacation to Japan, let's right. just say that.
1: Right, and Europe.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's now – it's really, really uh, – um, for the first time in a long time, an American uh, – <laughs> Traveling all over the world is going to look up and say, Hey, this this doesn't feel so bad. Right. So, right. and that's part of the way that the economies adjust, actually. You know, we go and buy stuff over there, and that helps boost uh, activity in those countries.
1: I know you touched on this earlier uh, in talking about the fact that obviously we hadn't had a pandemic since 1918. Um, so, this is This is not something where we can kind of look to the past and see how things happened. But are there points from history that the Fed is taking lessons from here? Uh, I I remember during the the 2008 financial crisis, we had a Fed chair in Ben Bernanke, who was a historian of of the Great Depression. So there was a bit of guidance there. What can today's Fed turn to for guidance? I
0: think it's tricky. I mean, elements of the 70s and the supply shocks is something that they will – you know, are looking at. Um, The supply chains being as disrupted as they were a year and a half ago or two years ago was something we haven't really seen. I mean, if you look at the outsourcing, offshoring of so much production and having these um, supply chains that were kind of integrated where We've discovered parts of them might run through, say, China, which was shut down. was was something that was somewhat surprising. We we could have learned more. There was an earthquake in uh, Fukushima in Japan about ten years ago. Yeah,
1: 2011.
0: And when that happened, people thought, okay, well, you know, it's. It turns out that that wasn't the central area of production for most of the Japanese economy, but there were certain parts and um, supply chains that were majorly disrupted. And I think people were caught by surprise of how much disruption there was to the auto industry, just because there were, you know, just these critical nodes that got got knocked out. That didn't get so, so much attention during the pandemic. But looking back, that was a, a sign that if you haven't mapped exactly how your supply chain... Uh, is working and depending on critical links, you, you could wake up one day and discover, oh, my gosh, you know, even though this is only 5% of what we need to make the car or make whatever we're doing, semiconductors or w- what have you, if, if that little critical node is not operating, we're in trouble. And so I think businesses will spend a little bit more time diversifying their supply chains so that maybe there's some regional – variety. Maybe there's having multiple suppliers will be something that, that people think about a little bit more carefully. But that that takes a while to sort itself out. Um, and a lot of the initial supply chain disruptions are are kind of working their ways through. It's just by now, we've spread into inflation's kind of in, in most products. So now we're more like just other periods where inflation got high and the the initial impulse is less important than the fact that most items in, in your purchasing basket are rising pretty sharply.
1: So, Anil, what is the end game here for the Fed? People are still spending money. Consumers are still out there buying things. The labor market is still strong. What does a good landing look like what is there a primary indicator that they want to see change before they finally kind of start backing away from these very aggressive moves on interest rates
0: i mean i think they tell you they're watching the labor market if the labor market still is roaring along there's no increase in unemployment people um there's lots of vacancies for every job that's available that's something they've been paying a lot of attention to as long as that's true, they're not going to feel like monetary policy is that restrictive and they're going to keep going. That's the primary thing that they're probably looking at. They are going to look at their inflation forecasts, even though they haven't been great. They're probably going to hope that they can get inflation turned around and it starts coming down, in which case then maybe they can pause on hiking rates and just wait and see for a while, I think the nightmare scenario for them is inflation gets down to let's say eighteen months from now, three and a half to four percent, and the economy is weaker. I mean the labor market has cooled off, unemployment's up by, you know, let's say half a percent. And now they have to decide do we keep pushing to get back down to our stated target of two, or do we kind of declare victory and say, hey, our forecast suggests that if we just hang on here, it's all going to take care of itself. And that'll kind of be a moment of reckoning because the public will have to decide at that point, do you really trust them? And are you going to stop demanding wage hikes to keep up with the, the past inflation that you've lived through and say, okay, I, I'm going to go back to where we were in 2019 when nobody thought about inflation. People weren't demanding pay increases to make up for Inflation that that caught them by surprise, and you know, inflation was just something that wasn't on everybody's radar. At three and a half or four, are people going to be content to do that? I don't know. It'll be a really difficult position at that stage if they really have to get forced to say, "Well, we have to make sure we get rid of this, and we're not going to take any chances." So, if it's a choice between overdoing it a bit and making sure that inflation does not become entrenched in the way everybody is making decisions will take that chance. So I think for a while, it's pretty clear what they're going to do is they're going to keep leaning in against the labor market, trying to see if they can find a good balance. And then probably there'll be a difference of opinion as we get As we get closer, once the labor market starts to cool, whether they should keep going or not, then it's going to get pretty nasty because it will be very unclear. You're not going to be able to say in real time whether you should keep going or not, and you're going to have then, I think, a pretty vigorous debate from people inside the Fed amongst each other but outside critics. Politics will be pretty pretty nasty too because then we're getting closer to the presidential election – They're going to have their hands full
1: well then i'm curious um that in in describing uh what the fed could be thinking about uh, i i'm curious what your major concerns are at this moment in terms of what the fed is doing where that balance should fall between bringing down high inflation and sparking a recession just really how concerned or worried are you about the current state of both the u.s and the global economies
0: Many macroeconomists would say that the odds of a recession are better than 50 percent over the next 12 to 18 months. I'm certainly in that camp because I think they got so far behind that there's there's nothing they can do other than try to pull back some of the demand. You know, if you had a time machine, you'd go back and you'd change policy a year, a year and a half ago, but you can't do that. Now you got to, you know, you got to play the hand you're dealt. So, At this point, I think it's it's good that they're keeping their eye on the ball and that they realize that they've got to do something about the excess demand relative to supply. And if you're lucky, maybe the economy will recover more quickly. But it hasn't so far. And uh, I think that I don't think we're in recession now. The the labor market is just too tight. It's too easy to get a job to, to declare this a recession, even if it doesn't feel great. Whether Six, eight months from now, we're still going to be in that position. I don't know. Also, the problem they're going to have is this communications policy, the kinds of questions you're asking about, like, why do we actually have to do all of this? And, you know, <laughs> who's benefiting from, from making mortgage rates go to 8 or 9%? Um, that's not intuitive to most people. We haven't had to do anything like this in a long, long time. And so they're going to face challenges, and it's going to be easy to pick on them, my, my guess is they will try to just say, look, it's our, this is what the law says we're supposed to do, and so we're going to do it. That'll put them in a much more visible spot than they've been other than the global financial crisis for most of the last 40, 50 years.
1: Okay. Anil Kashyap, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. The pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu/slash-subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.